The Apache is this massively large helicopter. It's 58 feet long. You know, it's 18 feet across. It's 12 feet wide. There's two 1,850 horsepower engines, three different weapon systems, three different sight systems. And what that means is that the actual flying part of it is a completely different beast. It has a lot more stabilization controls. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, your host. Today, I talk to Shannon Huffman Polson, one of the first women to ever fly an Apache attack helicopter in American history. And she has a fascinating backstory as well, growing up in Alaska, choosing to join the military while going to university, dealing with tremendous bias and tremendous support from colleagues and superior officers during her journey in the military. You know, at age 19, Shannon Polson became the youngest woman ever to climb Mount McKinley. She was a native of Alaska, and she went on to reach the summits of Mount Rainier and Mount uh, Kilimanjaro and spent more than a decade traveling the world. So it gives you a little bit of sense of who we're talking to today, a real adventurer and someone who's brave, tremendous courage, and a pioneer. She also, however, has faced tremendous personal tragedy in her life, and she later became a writer and now is emerging as a young thought leader in leadership. She's highly sought after as a speaker, as a trainer, as an influencer to help companies looking to get uh, better. She's also one of my students, one of my former students. I know one of these super high achievers where flying an Apache helicopter is only the first chapter in a meaningful and dynamic career. She has a new book coming out soon called the Grit Factor. And I don't think I've ever had another guest on the SIDCast who's about to launch a new book because, you know, that's not really what this podcast is about. It's not about, you know, people coming here to talk about their book and just kind of sell books. It's much more about stories, about life, about journeys, and about careers. And it seems to me that so much of what was going on before for Shannon has come together in this new book, which makes, for me, the book so interesting and so real because everything she's done up to this point in her life is poured into that book. And so while we will talk about the grit factor, we're going to talk more about who she is and how she got to be the person she is. And, you know, it does raise a really kind of intriguing question for me and maybe for all of us to consider. What are the prerequisites for life? Yeah, that's right. What are the prerequisites for life? What must we do in our lives before we're able to do another thing, often a much bigger thing? For example, I know I could never have done some of the things I ended up doing. For example, writing my own books like Super Bosses or Why Smart Executives Fail, or more to the point, knowing what to ask and how to ask it, unless I had experienced many other things along the way. When I reflect back on my own you know, life, my own journey, my own career. I I didn't know I was working my way towards those types of milestones and that type of impact. It wasn't like there was a plan to do this, then that, and then I'll be ready, and and bingo, I'm there. It wasn't anything like that. And I know for some people, they do have these step-by-step plans to get to their pinnacle, whatever that may be. But if you don't, and I didn't, you probably need some type of stimulus or shock or change to get you to take that next step, that next uncertain step, a step that could just as easily lead to failure as to success. And, you know, for me, I was very fortunate as I've been in so many other things. I had a dean at the Tuck School, I guess you can call him my boss, a dean, Paul Danos, who really was that shock or that stimulus for me. 
After I was、uh, tenured back in the late 1990s and actually became a full professor in the late 1990s at Dartmouth College, I remember walking into Paul Danos's office and he sat down, he congratulated me, of course, and he said, You know, what are you going to do next? And I was thinking, well, you know, I've been publishing a lot of work. I've been writing a lot of articles. I've been a really great kind of mainstream academic. And he said, yeah, that's great. Keep doing that. That's good. But have you ever thought about doing something really, really different? You know, with all the things you've learned and all the people you've talked to and all the classes you've taught, maybe you can write a book for a much wider audience about leadership. And、uh, it wouldn't be easy, be a stretch, but maybe that's something you might want to think about. And, So he put the bug in my ear. I know I kind of look back and I think, why didn't I think of that myself? And maybe I would have. I'm not going to shortchange myself on that, but, but I didn't at that point. And he did. And Paul, in a sense, gave me permission and opportunity and kind of opened the door and said, here's something you can do that'll change your trajectory. That allow you to potentially have a much bigger impact and a much bigger platform, and that you're capable of doing it. It's kind of like what、uh, I wrote about in Superbosses about what great leaders do. They see the potential in other people often before they see it themselves. Anyways, I was fortunate to get that stimulus, that shock, that change that got me to go in a different direction. But I, you know, I like this question about what are the prerequisites for life? What do we have to do before we can get to the next stage and the next stage and the next stage? And I think I'll probably return to the theme in some future podcast episodes. And if you, know, if you have some thoughts, absolutely please write me and share either through email or through the website. I'm really, really interested. Okay, back to Shannon Polson, our guest on the SITCAST today. The book coming out soon is called The Grit Factor, and she asked me to write a blurb about her book. And here's what I wrote quote, With compelling and page turning stories of resilience and adaptability, The Grit Factor is a groundbreaking book about women who took on the stereotypes and blew right by them. Practical, Accessible and inspirational. This is the leadership book we've been waiting for. End quote. It's a pretty good blurb, actually, isn't it? And I meant every word of it. As good as the book is, Shannon's life story is even better because the book is, in effect, a chapter in that life story. Why did she decide to go in the military in the first place? And how challenging was that? How difficult was that? And as one of the first women seeking to fly an attack helicopter, What reaction did she get? Did she get support? Did she have to deal with roadblocks from others? And especially, how did senior male officers react? How did she deal with personal tragedy? And she did face personal tragedy in her life. These are the types of questions I wanted to know about, I wanted to ask her about. And we engage in all of that in our conversation. So I spoke to Shannon from my dining room table. Shannon called in from her office in Washington State. Let's go to the podcast. Welcome to the SITCAST. And I'm broadcasting today from my dining room here in Hanover, New Hampshire, and talking to a former student of mine, an extremely accomplished woman, Shannon Huffman Polson. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Sid. Great to be with you. Where are you today? I'm broadcasting from our small co work space in Winthrop, Washington. So, another small town, even smaller than yours. <laughs> well, that is something since you know how small Hanover and Hampshire is. <laughs> so, there's really a lot of great things to talk about with you, a lot of interesting things. And you're someone who's had multiple careers, has found a way to link, I think, the stuff you've done throughout that, learn from each stage and take it to the next stage, and had some twists and turns, of course, in there as well. I'm always curious why people. Go into the military and when they decide. And how young were you when you started thinking about this? You know, when I was applying to college, my father, who had been drafted out of law school for Vietnam and sent to Alaska instead, but was still very <laughs> proud of his service as an Army JAG officer, 
suggested that I look at the academies and ROTC, and I just did not see myself in that at all. And I, I think I literally laughed at the idea. <laughs> and I applied to colleges, ended up going to Duke University, and but I was the oldest of our family, and I knew that the brothers that would be following me would also need to be paying for college, and finances were tight. And so during one of the initial college fairs, I stopped at each of the booths for the Army and the Air Force and the Navy, and the Army was the only one that would allow me to be a liberal arts major, which I knew that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And I figured I would try it, and I thought that I would probably hate it, but I could say that I tried it. And I ended up really connecting to a lot of things about it, but it was really then that that experiment began. And I didn't make the decision about active duty until a few years later. But So how does that work? If you go in ROTC, it's a program, but there's no commitment to stay in the military? Or how does that well, work? Well, there is. It depends on when you accept the scholarship. And what I did was apply for a what was called a simultaneous membership program, which meant that I drilled with the National Guard for the last two years, but it was only mm-hmm. a two-year scholarship. And that meant that I didn't have to make a commitment until mm-hmm. my junior year when I accepted that scholarship. I see. And yeah. so you grew up in Alaska? I grew up in Alaska. Yes, exactly. Was it in Juneau or Anchorage or a smaller place? No, Anchorage. My dad was stationed at Fort Richardson as a JAG attorney, and I was born while he was still in the military. And then he got out and decided to stay in Alaska, and so I did too. (laughs) And and you said, (laughs) I hope so, and you said you're the oldest of several? There's three of us. Yes, exactly. What's it like to grow up in Alaska? You know, I'm really grateful for it. I don't think that I knew at the time because, again, it felt to me like a small town, although Anchorage is not at all a small town. It's, you know, half the population of the entire state. But I wanted to get away, which I think is what most high school kids probably do. And I didn't appreciate it until later. But it really is a very outdoor-oriented culture, and I'm incredibly grateful for growing up in the mountains, the Chugach Mountains, and skiing, and running, and hiking, and camping. Very, very outdoor-oriented, right, for sure. Right, right. Yeah, and you so you climbed Denali, didn't you, when yeah, you were a teenager? I was in college, and I had uh, come back home from... I had been training for some various army events, and so I'd been doing a lot of ruck marching with big, heavy backpacks for you know twelve or thirteen miles. And I came back home and joined my mother actually at a Rotary Club meeting, and that was the fiftieth anniversary of the Anchorage Rotary, and they were going to attempt to climb of Denali. And so I joined the climbing team. We knew. Lowell Thomas, who is also a uh, Dartmouth alum, who was going to be flying everybody up to the mountain. And I had about a month to train with the team, and then we headed up to the mountain. What was that like? I mean, is that the highest peak in America? It's the highest peak in North America, and I think based to summit the highest in the world, if you don't count the ones that go underwater, uh, (laughs) because it starts (laughs) much lower than the Himalayan plateaus. But it was uh, still, and I've done a lot of physically demanding things, still the most physically challenging and, as a result, incredibly mentally challenging thing that I've ever done. We had really, really bad weather, really bad storms, and so we were Mm -hmm. stuck at high camp, which is above 17,000 feet for over a week, ran out of food. (laughs) It was a pretty intense time, for sure, and an experience Mm -hmm. I'll certainly never forget and don't necessarily want to repeat. (laughs) So anyone who's climbed mountains will think this is a dumb question, but what happens at 17,000 feet to you and to your thinking and your physical and mental health? Well, it's just below what they call the death zone. And so everything, although the stakes are still very high, everything seems to slow down the way that you think, the way that you make decisions, the way that your body responds. In fact, you move in a whole different way when you're moving uphill. You're kicking in to the ice or the snow and then transferring your weight onto your skeletal structure to try to give your 
muscles a little bit of a break because they have a lot less oxygen. So it's definitely a difficult altitude to operate at and above. Uh, but at the same time, that what really made it challenging was that uh, we had done a summit attempt on almost no food because, again, we'd run out of food essentially because of the storm and forced time in the tent. And then in the midst of waiting for a second summit attempt where we were also still stuck at this high altitude, there was another team that had lost a team member. And so we had the other team member in our tent with us and he and wow. my guide were talking about losing people climbing. It was a pretty intense time, actually. Yeah, really. Wow. And yeah. have you continued to climb over the years? I went ahead at towards the end of my time in the military. I went and traveled up to Seattle before I knew that I was going to eventually be living in Washington State and climb Mount Rainier. And then at the end of business school, actually, after Tuck, I went to Africa and climbed Kilimanjaro. So those have really been it. I think now... That's all. Not, that's not much, right? I, that was also <laughs> actually... You know, you actually ascend Kili quite a bit more quickly than you than I ascended Denali. And so I really actually thought I was about to die <laughs> the entire mm. summit push of Kili. Oh, <laughs> the altitude goodness. change is significant. Well, let's talk about something calmer and safer, like being a uh, Apache <laughs> helicopter pilot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I see a pattern developing here. So let's see, you were at Duke and graduating, and then you went to, was it Army Aviation School? Yeah, that's right. Yep, I left. I had decided instead of going into the National Guard to go active duty, which is a whole story in and of itself, but then went to Fort Rucker, Alabama. And right the year that I graduated, actually, that same spring is when Congress lifted the combat exclusion clause, which previously had said that women were not allowed to fly, scout, or attack aircraft. So the year that I graduated, that restriction was lifted, and I went to the initial entry rotary wing and officer basic course and ended up qualifying for or earning the opportunity to then qualify in the Apache helicopter. So, I mean, what was that like? There couldn't have been very many women with you in that training, right? No, there wasn't. And it's funny because throughout my time in the military, there were almost no women around. And actually, when I arrived at Tuck and there were 25% women and Tuck was concerned that there were such a low number of women, I thought it was just really the most that I'd been around in a decade. There were a couple in my flight school class in the Apache transition. There was actually one other woman in my very small class of about 10 and she had been a Cobra pilot before. So, But after that, when I arrived at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, there were no women at all in the regiment, which were 120 pilots. So. And so what was it like? How did it go? I'm going to assume <laughs> you had some big challenges from all sorts of people of the male yeah. persuasion. It was challenging. I think I will say, and I think others have said too, that you know, the military is this cross-section of the American population. So I worked with some of the absolute best people that I ever hoped to know and ever hoped to work with. And I also worked with some of the worst. And so that's mm -hmm. kind of the curve, right? That's the curve that we have in any kind of a cross-section. It happens to be a very insular culture that is extremely intense, as you would imagine. And so mm -hmm. I think the good is better than it is in other places, and the bad is worse. And so it was a huge transition for me, but I, and I think also for the men who were there that had not had to make that kind of a transition either. And I think back on that and think about how... They had done things a certain way for decades in some cases. There were some, a couple of Vietnam veterans that were still part of the unit at the time. And then all of a sudden, this 23-year-old woman is added to the regiment, and things are supposed to change. And I think that was hard for all of us. That was hard for people. Yeah, and I think I read, or it may have been in your book, or you may have been in another interview, a lack of encouragement, let's just say, among a senior officer along the way. And maybe you could just share that story. Sure. There's a couple that I'll never forget. And I think the earliest was when I was still a cadet and I was still a student at Duke. It was just before graduation, just before commissioning, which is when we are considered officers in the Army. And I drove out to the state aviation office in Raleigh, North Carolina to receive my assignment for the years ahead because, again, my scholarship was with the National Guard and I assumed that I would be drilling and 
assigned to the National Guard. And I reported to a colonel who, of course, was at least 15 years older than I was. I was just 21, again, not graduated, not commissioned. And I remember trying not to shake too much and standing at attention and saluting. And he asked me to sit down and we explained, talked a little bit about what was happening and a couple of sentences of pleasantries. And then I remember that in the middle of our conversation, in the middle of a sentence, he stopped and he leaned back in his chair and looked down his nose at me and said, you realize, cadet, that you will never fly an attack aircraft. (laughs) So there you go. (laughs) Nice. So what did you do or say after he said that? Well, I looked back at him and I recognized his comment for what it was meant to be, which was pretty small and mean and cutting, even though I was just 21 years old. But there are times when all that there is to say is yes, sir. And so I said, yes, sir. And I went to my next meeting, which was with the assignments officer. And he gave a call to the battalion commander and the unit where I'd been drilling. And then he hung Mm -hmm. up and he was quite a bit more civil. But he said, listen, cadet, the battalion commander won't allow a female pilot to be assigned to his unit. And so I went back. I said, yes, sir. Because again, Mm -hmm. there's sometimes that's all that there is to say. And I went back to the ROTC detachment on the campus of Duke University and spoke to the commanding officer there and requested a transfer out of the National Guard and onto active duty. And that is where the history of my active duty years began. And so that was a different command, different people, and they were more open to it, obviously. Yeah, they were 100% more open. I remember actually the person that I was talking to was also an aviator. And he said, look, we're past the deadline, but we'll get you and I think that's an example of where leadership says that we'll follow rules as guidelines, but we'll make sure that we make things happen when we need to make them happen. And and he did. Great example of that. So how do you learn to fly an Apache helicopter? I mean, what's that? How do you do that? (laughs) I mean, you learn learn to fly something else first. So that's a helpful thing. I started out on Hueys, actually, when we were still flying Hueys as the first or the UH-1, the old utility helicopter from Vietnam. And then went into the scout track where we flew the jet ranger. And the scout track is sort of, there was a scout and attack track. So the people that would be doing the more attack-related missions, I guess. And then into the Apache is a huge, huge change. Because all of a sudden, the Apache is this massively large helicopter. It's 58 feet long. You know, it's 18 feet across. It's 12 feet wide. There's two 1,850 horsepower engines, three different weapon systems, three different sight systems. And what that means is that the actual flying part of it is a completely different beast. It has a lot more stabilization controls. In the Jet Ranger, I remember my feet were on the pedals constantly, just constantly moving just to keep the helicopter in trim. And in the Apache, for all of us that came out of the Jet Ranger, or the OH-58 is what we called it in the military, but the instructors would just say, take your feet off the pedals completely. (laughs) You have to learn not to do that in this huge aircraft. Because really, the Apache is more about systems management. It's highly, highly complex technically. And so mm-hmm. it was really about managing the systems on the aircraft. And the flight controls were, in many cases, stabilized in ways that made it easier to fly. Wow. And I think I saw a picture of you next to I mean, they are enormous. They're um, huge. <laughs> they're, so you flew several missions or many missions on the Apache? Yeah, so I was deployed. I flew at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. We deployed Mm -hmm. from Fort Bragg to Bosnia and flew in support of the Dayton Peace Accords as part of the NATO Stabilization Force. And then came back to Fort Bragg. I had another 
bit of army schooling that I did at Fort Huachuca in military intelligence and then went to Korea. And we were all there in Korea supporting Op Plan 5027, which is the defense of South Korea. I was stationed as part of the 2nd Infantry Division. So that's, they call that a north of the no smile line. So we were, <laughs> we were about 10 kilometers south of the demilitarized zone. And so that was a pretty, it was much more interesting than the news would, than the news covered. I will just say that. I think the year that after I left Korea, Madeleine Albright visited and said that that border was the most dangerous border in the world at the time. So it was a pretty interesting mission in both cases, but I was stationed between the deserts. And so I give incredible deference to those who are out flying the missions that they have flown over the last 20 years. Wow. How long were you in the military? I served on active duty for eight years. And then at what point did you decide you wanted to do something different? About a year before I left, I was in Korea, actually, and I requested to extend my time in Korea and then get out. And the army refused that request. And so I was transferred to Fort Bliss, Texas, where I spent another year. And once you transfer, once you do what they call a, a permanent change of station or a PCS, you're required to stay in at least for another year. And so in the course of that time, I started to look at business schools. Um, I actually sent my application to Tuck DHL so that it would arrive <laughs> on the last day of the last round from Kuwait. <laughs> Oh so, so there we have it. And I received orders to my follow-on assignment the same time that I received my acceptance to Tuck. And obviously, you know the decision that I made. So, yeah. So, what did it feel like to go back to school, business school, no less, after being in a particular type of organization, performing at a high level uh, for eight years? What did it feel like? You know, it was very complicated. And I think that was true for several reasons. One is I left the military in August of 2001. And so I arrived at Tuck, went on the outward bound, you know, team building, class building program, which I loved, which was absolutely the way that I like to learn to know people and relate to people. And then September 11th happened mm. right after I arrived. And it was very hard to be somewhere not in uniform at that time because I had been so immersed in this culture of both being trained to believe that I could make a difference, mm -hmm. even though I was part of a very large machine, literally. And so it was very hard to not be somewhere where I felt like I was mm. making a difference and responding. And at the same time, when I got to Tuck, I felt utterly and completely inadequate. I was struggling with decision science like, <laughs> like nothing else. Quantitative uh, course, yeah. The quantitative course. I'd taken all of the little the courses that they'd recommend that you warm up with, but it was mm -hmm. certainly not enough. It was nothing like the investment bankers and the consultants that had been doing that for a couple of years before. They'd just been doing Excel, right? And I had really not used it except for a list. I struggled with accounting. Man, I, I struggled a lot, I will say, <laughs> academically. And at the same time, I loved, I, I mean, it was just a special place to be with a strong sense of community, which I think I really needed. And it was absolutely the right decision because of that for me. Absolutely the right Bit. And I was sort of a fish out of water academically. I was also struggling with not feeling like I had a purpose in a sense, mm -hmm. because I had gone from this extremely purpose-driven place and where it was this insular, narrative-driven, purpose-driven environment to a place where it felt very selfish in a sense, especially in the midst of what was happening internationally. And so... It was a hard transition for me. And yet at the same time, I think Tuck made it the best transition that it possibly could have been. Yeah. So it really is. I mean, all business schools have folks that come from the military, veterans that come in more and more. And right. I notice them in the classroom right away is different because I teach what I teach with MBA students is a little bit more related to leadership than anything else. And it stands out pretty quick. <laughs> so Shannon, you've written at least a couple of books. There's a book coming out in September. I'm extremely 
interested in, and it's about grit. And I think after hearing some of what you've done in your career so far, the idea that you might be interested in this topic of grit is not going to be a shock to listeners, I think. But tell us where this idea came from. Yeah, I was asked a number of years ago via an online mentorship program by a young lieutenant if I would be her mentor as she started the journey into flight school with the Army. And I immediately said yes. It was a number of years ago, but it was really about five or six years ago. So for context, I had been out of the military then about 14 years. And so when she made that request and I immediately accepted it, I realized wow, my experience is now possibly a little bit dated. It's certainly very unique for having been one of the first women to enter into Army Attack Aviation. So how can I scale the advice that I give to her? How can I collect more advice and more wisdom than just my own limited story? And then at the same time, if I do the work to do that, how can I scale the people to whom this advice is available? And that was really what I initially called the GRIT project that has evolved into both the GRIT Institute for Training and the GRIT Factor, which is a book that comes out in September. And the reason for the word GRIT was really because as I thought about what I wanted to convey to her and what was critical to all of these various challenges that I have either gone through or sought out is that GRIT, and it's a word that we used when I was growing up, Mm -hmm. although certainly popularized by the work of Angela Duckworth and her amazing work with the Character Lab and her TED Talk. Grit was really integral to all of those experiences and the ability to both endure them, but beyond endurance, really to be successful in them and to really thrive in those environments. And so grit became kind of my touch point for what it was that I wanted to convey to her. And since then, of course, it's become much more nuanced and much more developed, but that's really the genesis of this. And so this is something you've been working on actually for quite a long time. And the book is something of a culmination of this state of the work and your insights from it, right? That's right. Yes, exactly. So I guess everyone kind of knows what grit means. Does it mean what do we all think it means? Stick-to-itiveness, resilience, uh, get back up when things don't go right, don't give up, this type of thing? Yeah, I think that's a lot of it. I think resilience is slightly different. Actually, I had one of the women that I interviewed initially, I ended up really focusing in on women that had been in the vanguard of their military fields. But before that focus, I started out interviewing a broader subsection of women, and that was really women that had been through really gritty experiences. So one of them had been on one of the first women's team to climb Everest. And she's an avid climber, an avid outdoors woman. And I remember when I first talked to her, she actually said it the best. She said, you know, grit and resilience are very different. Grit is like a bivouac on the side of the rock wall on a rainy, windy night. And resilience is like the reed that blows and then comes back up. I thought that was beautiful. So I think there are nuances in all of these things that really did come out in these interviews in a meaningful way. And perhaps most importantly, the grit is really part of a holistic system. And I think that was my experience. And I think it was very much the experience of mm-hmm. all of the, the leaders that I interviewed for the project. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, I get a question all the time. I used to kind of, I don't know, get annoyed by the question because it's such a simple question. But then I started thinking about grit and started thinking about your story. And the question popped in my head and I said, wow, if I'm thinking about it, then I should be taking it easy on all these people ask me this. And the question they asked me is, question you've gotten to no doubt which is our leaders made or born and you just have this yeah that's something special or can you learn all this stuff and I have a point of view about that but I want to ask you about grit in particular is it something people are born with or can you teach them how to do it 
So the leaders that I interviewed for this book had different opinions on that because we talked about that as one of our common points of conversation. A few people thought it was just something that you had when you were born. I disagree with that. I think that it can be trained. Actually, I have absolutely no question that grit is innate to every single one of us and that grit is a trainable skill. And I think that's been proven again and again. I actually was at West Point talking at their ethics conference a couple of years ago, and we were discussing how it is that you train for push-ups and you train for push-ups by doing push-ups as you might imagine. And you train for grit or doing hard things by doing hard things. And it's absolutely a trainable skill. I believe that with the data set of the people that I interviewed for this book, with the research that went behind it as well. So I disagree with a few of my interviewees, but I do think it's something that we all have and that we can all really capitalize and make stronger. I like that answer. I think, you know, when you think about leadership and even creativity, which is another one of these things that's out there, right? And it's so important. And can you teach creativity? Can people become more creative? And I think the answer is absolutely right. I mean, we're not going to create a Picasso. That's something you're born with. But whatever our level is when it comes to being an effective leader or a creative person, maybe also as a kind of whatever your bundle of grit is that you've developed by the time you become an adult, you can get more. You can learn how to extend that. And there are a bunch of things you can. In fact, how would we be teachers? How would we be able to work with companies and leaders and organizations if we didn't really believe it? That's absolutely right. And I think actually, as you bring up creativity, I think the same is true. I mean, if you spend any time around children, and I have two kids that are still in the younger ages, we're innately creative people. And I think that we are trained out of that. The same is true, I think, to some degree with grit, although maybe we have to learn Learn that along the way, but we can lose it or we can lose sight of it anyway. Mm-hmm. But I really believe we can regain it once we have lost sight of it because it is innate to our beings. Mm-hmm. And again, we'll all have different talents and different skills for sure. But right. grit is something that can be trained. And I think the ecosystem around it as well, and this is really what I'm focusing on with the Grit Institute, and it comes out in the grit factor too. The ecosystem that supports grit is something that we all need to pay attention to and be able to develop as well. Right. So it doesn't just happen by itself you got to, it takes a village. You got to do a bunch of things and it's an ecosystem that you create. Yeah, that makes sense. You also said something else interesting, which is that you could lose it. It's kind of like, you know, your muscles, <laughs> if you stop exercising, right. uh, you're going to lose some of that muscle density. And that's true for grit then. I think it's true. In my own experience, that's true for sure. I have certainly had points in my life in the last 10 years where I haven't felt as able to get through something, or, or maybe it's even a new area where I need to be able to apply grit. And I realize that I need to be able to go back and pull on places where I have been strong in the past to apply it. This is again, another thing I focus on in both the book and the training. But yeah, I think there are times when we might be in a different stage of life. We might have just come through a hardship and feel particularly vulnerable. There are times when we may feel that we have lost that sense of mm-hmm. It. And I think that is absolutely something we can regain. You know, it also made me think about acting. Ah. Actors are, the best actors draw on their life, draw on their experiences, and singers as well for them. And I guess performers more generally. And that you have to go kind of to a place of pain or of happiness or of desire or whatever it is and channel that feeling when you're actually performing. And it occurs to me that that might also be true for grit. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's both the channeling the feeling and that memory even of that other time. It's also going back, I think, and saying, what is, and I I actually talk a lot about story and narrative. So what is that story? What is, how do I understand how it is that I got through this other difficult time? I transcended this experience. And what specific skills did I use? What specific skills did I develop? Who did I rely on? Where did I find my strength then? 
And how can I take that and apply that to this new situation or this new challenge? And I think there's great opportunities in both the memories themselves, as you're describing that an actor or an actress might draw on, as well as the very specific tangible skills Mm-hmm. and resources. Right. You know, when, when we talk about storytelling, that is just one of the big themes of SIDCAST, kind of why I wanted to start it in the first place, to hear people's stories. We're hearing your story today, Shannon, about how stories are so fundamental to how we think about the world and who we are. And so you use that in your seminars and you're teaching them. Absolutely. I mean, it's actually such a passion of mine and something that I believe in so much that my first iteration of The Grit Factor, I could have written the entire book just on story and I had to cut back (laughs) quite a bit (laughs) because it really is just integral, quite frankly, to everything that we do and everything that we are, whether or not we recognize it. And to recognize it means to claim the potential to change it. And I think that's a really, really important and powerful lesson. You know, not that long ago, I had a guest on the SIDCAST, Dr. Rita uh, Charon, who is at Columbia University. She has an MD from Harvard Medical School. And 20 years later, she went to get a PhD in English literature ah, from University while she was practicing medicine. So pretty. My gosh. It. And she is the, she really is the creator of, a, of an entirely new field in medicine, which is really kind of mind boggling to think about. And it's called narrative medicine. And it's about storytelling as part of the healing process. And in fact, it's actually someone you should look up and go, maybe go back and listen to you know that podcast because it fits I in can't wait. your themes as well. And she talks about how you talk to a patient. And usually if you're a doctor, what do you say to the patient? Well, tell me what's wrong. What's the problem? And you know, does this hurt? And then they start digging down. And does it hurt when you do this? Is it comfortable doing that? And they keep digging, digging, digging. And she's says, that's not the way to find out what's really going on. And more important, that's not the way to heal someone. What you should do, or I don't know if she says should, but what she does and her followers, which are now quite a large number of people, is, well, tell me about your body. Tell me about your health. Tell me about your life. And then she sits there with her hands folded and she listens. And what she's doing really is letting a patient, in this case, tell their story. And she knows how to read stories because she's highly trained in both fields, medicine and literature, but also as a practicing physician for decades. And she hears that story and she's able to get insights into that story that might not otherwise come up. Absolutely. That is incredibly powerful. I love to hear that because that, and that is something too, I think to take things down another level is if you are looking at your own story or drawing strength from another story, which I think by the way, is also almost just as powerful because we sometimes don't see the truths in our own stories without a little bit of help. And that's where a good friend or a a mentor or a therapist, all of those various relationships that can be part of supporting that ecosystem can be incredibly helpful. I love hearing that. Thanks for sharing that. Do you feel that sometimes you are a therapist when you work with leaders? You know, trying to understand how they think and in a way you're trying to help them get better maybe more directly being successful in their careers, but what that just leads to is stronger, often, not always better mental health and feeling better about yourself. That's true. I know. I think that it's interesting because even when we want to focus in on these tactical skills and things that we can, very specific steps that we can take to go forward, all of that is grounded and rooted in the person that we are and the way that we're in the world at a given time. So it's very true. I try to stay focused on the things that can be done on very specific tangible things, because I think that is something within the context of a framework or within the context of training, that's something that we can go back and and touch base with. But I always start the training in the current course that I have right now that's just gone live is going for grit. And we start with that introspective work, which is looking at your own story, which is looking at your own core purpose and really drilling down to that. So I do think there is this marriage of these very deep personal elements with how it is that we 
present in the world, how we relate to the world, how we lead, really. Have you already started to notice changes because of the coronavirus and the work you do? Of course, you're not face-to-face like everyone else, but also how I'm just thinking of whether the work you do and this idea around grit and then the storytelling, it seems to me that it's going to be particularly relevant and helpful as we work our way to a better place after recovering from all this. I hope so. I mean, I certainly wouldn't have wished this on any of us, but we're in the midst of it. And I do think the timing is good for being able to discuss this kind of a skill set. And also, again, a place where we can all go mentally. It's interesting. I will say, yes, of course, the work has changed. I typically do a lot of keynoting and that has changed to some virtual events, but also really starting to pivot and focus in on what I can provide the value that the Grit Institute can provide with training that's online. And so that's, it's actually fantastic. I think it's wonderful to be able to say, how can we take this 45 minute keynote and really go deep, go deep into those lessons and allow people to take those things, internalize them and bring them forward into their work. But I will say the other thing that has changed that's interesting, and I spoke with a group of small business leaders a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. and I was talking about grit in a more holistic sense in the way that I often do. And then and then they said, well, what do you do when you're afraid? And I think what I'm seeing is that people are willing to be more vulnerable. They need to be more transparent and vulnerable. And, and there really is a true fear that has to be addressed. And so we kind of paused mm-hmm. and then backed up and talked about how it is that we reconnect to sources of strength, but also some very tactical things that we can do in a moment where some leaders are feeling paralyzed, frankly, by fear. And that's a very different place than I think a lot of people are used to being and a frightening place as well. And, you know, we all create our uh, masks in, in life and we're different types of people in different situations. But this whole thing has kind of stripped it away to our fundamentals, even something as simple as all these Zoom calls where, you know, you could have a kid walking by, uh, the cat's walking in front of the computer. There's exactly. no down. <laughs> and not that long ago, that would be considered unbelievably unprofessional. And now, right. who cares? It's really not important. So the separation that we've had, that we traditionally have between our work life and our personal lives which is something to me, it's a bit more of a fantasy that we create, but that's what has been there. Those things are melding together. They're becoming the same thing because we're all working out of our home and and we're stripping away some of these protective mechanisms that we build up. You're, You're absolutely right. I think there's beauty in that, by the way. And I think there's also incredible power. And when you are at a place where you're, again, if we're talking about developing grit or the systems that go into place that support that grit, that is required work to be able to really get to the place where you can access that strength and then use that strength to go forward. So I think that stripping away is painful, but it's also important. And again, has some incredible power. Is there any difference between men and women when it comes to grit? I like to think, actually, I do think that this is really much more individual than it is about men and women. I think it's very hard to separate characteristics by gender. I I think we do, and we do rightly, and studies will show that there are differences, of course, so I'm not suggesting that there aren't. But I do think it has a lot more to do with the experience and the situations that a given individual has been in, of course, than colored or influenced by our gender, because that's, yeah. that is just the way that we are in the world. So, but, you know, again, I've been working with women and I grew up in Alaska. We talked about that earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Where there's a bumper sticker that says Alaska, where men are men and women win the Iditarod. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I'm used to being in environments where women are excelling. And I think that not all women have had that same experience. Not all men have had that same experience. And so I think we come at things 
with the lens of our experiences. And so I don't want to hedge that question too much, mm -hmm. except to say that I truly believe that it is about the individual. And so nobody should feel held back because of something that they have no control over. Right. Shannon, I'm wondering if I could turn the conversation to something very personal for you and what happened in your life and to your dad. Is it okay if I ask you about that? Yeah, of course. You've written about it, and that's why I'm thinking it. It's a terrible story, and, you know, your tragic part of your life, you have written about, I think, in your book called North of Hope, right? That's right. The Arctic journey, and so your father and your stepmother, very experienced campers, adventurers, really, were attacked and killed by a grizzly bear while they were in their tent in the wilderness in Alaska. That happened maybe 15 years ago or so. And I just have to ask you, because, you know, we're talking about grit. You had to deal with that. You have dealt with it. It's hard to imagine for anyone having to deal with that. But how did you deal with that? And is that one of the reasons why grit is so central to you now as part of your self-image, your definition of who you are as a person? That's a great question. And I think it's interesting because when I do the training and the keynotes that I do now and the writing that I've been doing has mm -hmm. all been around business leadership and really drawing on these military experiences and stories. But when I mentioned North of Hope, it is very much a story about grit in that holistic sense, in mm -hmm. that having to connect to your own story and that finding your own resources. Um, I think the way that I approached and I don't say that I approached as though I had some kind of a 30,000 foot lens right. at the time. You didn't have I didn't, a plan. So. It, was, you, <laughs> it, was you, it was you breathing. That's what it was. It was breathing. Right. It's exactly. I mean, that's really literally where I think in certain cases like this, you literally take try to make sure you get up in the morning and you take a few steps and you wash your face. And that is sometimes a successful day. I think that what I ended up doing and what North of Hope tells the story of is that I went back and took the same trip that they had taken in the Arctic and retraced their steps and then wrote about it. And I think that when I am speaking to business audiences about how it is that you face a challenge, I like to talk about how you take off in an Apache, which is you turn your nose to face the wind. You fly directly into the wind. You turn directly towards the challenge. And I think that that is how I was raised. It's very much what I learned throughout a number of different experiences, certainly the military as well. And it was kind of the only way that I knew to address, yeah. to respond, actually. It wasn't to address, it was to respond to this circumstance that had happened. And I know I came back from the funeral in Alaska and our priest had set up in Alaska. He said, you know, you think you know what you're feeling now, but you won't really know what you're feeling for another six weeks. It was not going to hit you for six weeks. And I came back to Seattle and I signed myself up for a grief group, which I would never have done. It was just not my thing. I um, made sure I had a therapist. I just started to put structures in place because I was living alone at the time. I wasn't married. I wasn't, I didn't have anybody in my life. And I needed to kind of build some scaffolding because I didn't know what was going to happen. And then I needed to face what it was. And so I started to write. I started to do the work that I needed to move directly into it. And I really truly believe it's the only way through the hardest times in our lives. Mm -hmm. And it was certainly the case then. Yeah. And I think it's a story that everyone deals with some degree of challenge. This is ultra extreme to be sure. But it's a story that, you know, when you share it, even if, you know, you haven't had someone in your own family that's had, or a friend that's had such a tragedy, you can feel it, you know, you could feel you, which is very powerful, very meaningful. It's a human connection. You know, when I read a bit about that, you know, we haven't been in touch tremendously over the years, but you were in my classroom and, you know, we have that Tuck Dartmouth bond and we're both in the leadership yes. business, but I felt like I got to know you at a personal level. It was very touching, very meaningful, actually. And I think that's true for a lot of people. That's a gift that you can keep on giving 
it probably comes out, I'm going to think, in your leadership development, in your training, in the grit work you're doing. But, you know, it's kind of what we were saying before about coronavirus. We're just people, you know, we're just trying to figure it out. We're trying to do our best. In many cases, we're trying to survive. And you did that. And so you could speak to that. You could share that. And people could learn from that. I hope so. I mean, I think that was the hope when I started to do the work to write that first book, North of Hope, which was really to say, how can I be, and this is not easy for me because I'm not somebody that shares a lot easily. And I had to do a lot of work to do that, but I was in the hope that it might be able to connect to people in a meaningful way, to touch people in a meaningful way, to help them get through difficulties in a meaningful way, and ultimately to create something beautiful out of something tragic. And I think we all, again, and I don't want to just hop right back to the 20,000 foot level, but we have the opportunity with what we're given to create what we will. And sometimes that takes a lot of hard work and that's part of the work of grit, but it's also what makes life meaningful, I think. And so, yeah, so that personal connection is important when you're doing that deep work. And I'm really grateful that you experienced that and that it's been yes, something I can share. I did. I did. You don't even know because you don't know what you're reading as you go through each line and it did hit me. So what's next for you, Shannon? What's next on the agenda? I'm sure there's a long list. You know, some people, when they get much older than you are, come up with bucket lists. Yes. I think you might have like an Alaskan list uh, of things that you're going to accomplish. What's next? (laughs) You know, my big focus right now is on launching the Grit Factor. It is in developing the Grit Institute and bringing that training to companies around the world. I think it's, I'm incredibly excited about the content. It's incredibly rich. And I think it really will change lives and change teams and companies. And then I am going to uh, see how that goes for a little while. And I'm also working in the community as well on building a new library in our community. So that's been a lot of my personal focus, my personal time. And we are uh, just coming up towards the end over $5 million capital campaign and in the midst of this pandemic. So I'm incredibly proud of our team and about to hopefully break ground soon. And so all of those things, yeah, we're launching a new business in the midst of a pandemic and building a library in the midst of a pandemic uh, while while spending time with family, I think is going to be plenty to keep me busy for a while. (laughs) I think it will. One of the questions I like to ask people as we get close to kind of wrapping up is an advice question, but kind of with a little twist. And the twist is if you were to think back to yourself when you were 21 years old and you shared a little bit of where you were when you were 21 years old also earlier, if you were to kind of come up to the 21 year old Shannon and sit next to her and say, there's one thing you really want to know about life. There's one thing you want to think about. It's the one bit of advice I could give you, in other words, to give to yourself. What would that advice be to your 21-year-old self? Well, in full form, that is the grit factor. So I wrote that for the advice that I wish that I had had starting out and also in the midst of various business transitions later. So I hope everybody will enjoy that and benefit from it. But I will say that maybe the most important thing, thinking back to being that age, especially where I think we tend to hold other people's opinions and particularly high stead, is not to listen to the naysayers Mm. at all. I think you just can't even spend any time on it. And I think we want so much to be liked throughout our lives, especially in terms of your original question on men and women. We want so much to be liked and we want so much to make people happy, but you got to leave that aside and really focus on what it is that you're in the world to do and how it is that you're going to make a difference. And what other people think about that really is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a very difficult thing to do at 21, but that's what I would tell myself at 21. And that'll be a part of the grit factor, but there's a lot more too. That's great advice. Difficult advice. 
because you're always looking at I think you're right. I think it is even more difficult for women than for men. But, you know, nothing ever happens by just doing what everybody tells you to do. And I've often said, when you're making a decision in an organization, you're a leader of an organization, you know, there's lots of things you're going to fail at. It's just the way the world is. But why would you want to fail at something because you're doing what somebody else thought is the right answer? or the right approach, and not the one that you think is the right one. Why do that? Life is too short to do that. And, and so we have lots of, you know, we have Conoclast and creative people that we talked about earlier. But a lot of people that, you know, you have to listen to other people to get feedback. So it's a bit complicated, right? It is. You, you want to be open-minded. But at the For end sure. of the day, they got to have some core to yourself. And you got to be willing to take a chance on that. And that's what you're saying. Yeah, And you know, as part of that, I would say too, it's interesting, because I have had people ask me what I would say to their daughter who might be going to a military academy or, or doing anything else for that matter. And I would say really spend the time to understand what your own personal values are so you can do exactly what you're just saying is you don't compromise your values for anybody or anything. And if you do, and when you do, and this is from my own personal experience, it will be your biggest regret is compromising your own values. And so you've got to know what they are and you've got to know that you're not willing to compromise those for any reason. And that takes deep work at, at that age, especially early on in our lives, but it's ongoing work as well. So. Right. I can Absolutely. tell you it's ongoing work when you get a little older than you are and you're my age. You're always working. That's right. In fact, exactly. it's one of the most exciting things to be working on because you're building, you're building you, you're building who you are. Exactly. And you only have a certain amount of time to do that building project, right? Exactly. And, you know, I just talked to a group. I don't want to give you too many pieces of advice or too many answers to your questions, but I talked to a group of women at Duke who are all in the engineering profession last last year, and they're all still juniors and seniors. And they were all very, very concerned about, they were concerned that they were going to get on a track and they were never going to get off that track and they weren't going to be able to do other things. And, and I just wanted to tell them, don't worry about that. You get to decide and ask yourself, you know, what in the world breaks your heart and how do I want to contribute to that thing? And think about that contribution that you're going to make in the world, even more than who you are, right? Because I think there's just great work that the most important work that is done is usually done for something bigger than yourself. It's never about you. It's always got to be about something else. And that's what it makes it worthwhile. That's what it makes life exciting and gives us a real opportunity to make the world a better place. So Absolutely. Well said. Shannon, it's been such a pleasure, a lot of fun to talk to you. I learned a lot and I know my audience is going to be very intrigued to learn more and maybe pick up the grit factor, uh, which will be coming out pretty soon. Wonderful, Sid. It's a pleasure to talk to you as well, always. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please Give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SITCAST is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.